Hello and welcome to the Highlighter Podcast number nine. I'm your host, Mark Icero. The Highlighter Podcast is where you, the loyal subscribers of the newsletter, get to talk about the articles that matter most to you. This week, I have a surprise for you. It's always been a dream of mine to connect writers with readers, and today, for the first time ever, I'm excited to announce that the author of one of last week's highlighted articles is on the show. Zoe Carpenter is an associate editor at The Nation and the author of What's Killing America's Black Infants. Today, she is in conversation with loyal highlighter subscriber Allison McManus, who teaches history at City Arts and Technology in San Francisco. Thank you, Allison, for connecting me with Zoe, and thank you, Zoe, for being on the podcast. Let's get to that interview. Well, hello, Zoe. Um, so I am excited to get to have this conversation with you for the highlighter today. Um, my name is Allison McManus, and I teach at a charter school in San Francisco. And when I got the highlighter this week, I noticed that this amazing article by Zoe Carpenter called What's Killing America's Black Infants was highlighted. And I immediately emailed Mark Icero and said Zoe is my, was my college roommate for two years. So I'm really, really excited that I get to host this with you. Um, how are things over in Washington, D.C.? Things in Washington, they're, they're great. They're gray and rainy today, but otherwise no complaints. And would you tell us a little bit, Zoe, about your position um, with the nation? Sure. So I am an editor in our Washington, D.C. office. And I edit and write features and short articles for the magazine and the website. And I tend to focus on health and environmental issues, um, although I do, I do other things too. But I'm really interested in the way that um, political um, and economic inequalities are reflected in bodies and in the landscape. Phenomenal. Um, and so the people at home can get a little more sense of you outside of the important work you're doing for the nation. Um, what are some of your other interests or hobbies? Well, um, I'm a runner and spend a lot of my mornings out on the trails. And then I'm also a musician. I play in a, I guess not what I'd call an alternative country band here in DC. Um, and I play some blues and folk stuff uh, with my mother, who's a professional musician as well. Awesome. Um, well, let's get, we got about 15 minutes, so I want to talk about this article. And for those listening, um, I highly, highly encourage you to read this article. It is one that's talking about systemic oppression, um, particularly as it appears in inequitable outcomes, um, specifically for infant mortality in black families. So something that I was really interested in in this article, Zoe, was that you are talking about an issue that I think is a huge um, symptom of systemic oppression. And I was interested, I think a lot of times people have a tendency towards trying to dismiss um, something like infant mortality, having a higher rate in black families as being a result of individual or personal choice, um, which I think misses how much responsibility we have in our society for this issue. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit um, about how do you see infant mortality and higher rates in black families as an issue that is systemic or institutional, 
um, as opposed to one that's just specifically tied to individual mother's choices? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, let me just sketch out a little background first for any listeners who haven't read the article. Uh, so the, U the U.S. has very high rates of infant mortality compared with other developed countries. Uh, we actually have the worst statistics um, of developed countries. And when you look at the data more closely, there's a huge gap between outcomes between for African-American families and for other families, specifically African-American and white families. That gap is huge. So in your area in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, black mothers are more than six times as likely to lose infants before their first birthday as white mothers. And that's consistent across many cities. Um, and, you know, public health researchers have been studying this for a while and trying to figure this out, uh, figure out both the disparity and why the U.S.'s rate is higher overall in general, um, because infant mortality is a pretty basic benchmark of how healthy a society is. So this is a really vexing problem. And, um, you know, first, they looked at sort of the what you mentioned, which was the personal responsibility angle. So what are what are mothers doing wrong? And that would be things like they're not eating right. They're not getting um, care. Uh, things of that nature. And even when you control for all those factors, you still have these gaps, uh, these racial gaps. And even when you give black women access to prenatal care, studies show that they were still losing their infants at a higher rate than white women who saw no doctors during their um, three trimesters of pregnancy. Uh, and so then the thinking shifted a little bit to looking at genetics. Um, and the, the thought was, well, maybe there's a genetic difference between African-American women and white women that explains this. Um, and a little side note here is that drug companies were really interested in that theory because they were hoping at this particular period that they could market a variety of different types of medications that could be targeted. Um, I'm getting some interference in the line. Do you hear that? Sorry to interrupt. Um, let me – I can try moving. Can you hear me still? No. Yes, yeah, as, as long as you can hear me, that's okay. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. I'm good on this. Okay. Um so the, the theory was there's maybe this genetic difference. Um, but when you compare populations of black women who were not born in the U.S., so women who are living in Africa or in the Caribbean um, who moved to the U.S., they have infant mortality rates that are on par with white women. So that suggests that there is something about being born black in America um, that is profound and has a biological impact on a woman's ability to have a healthy child. Um, even when you control just for socioeconomic status, you still get these racial outlays. Uh, and that doesn't mean that, you know, the poverty doesn't have an impact, that it, the environment doesn't have an impact also, um, but it means that there's something else specific about being a black woman born in America that is unhealthy. Yeah. Um, I really appreciated that you tie it back to, in a lot of ways, um, geography in terms of the sort of central story that you weave throughout your article is about Tonda Thompson, who lost her son um, within 20 hours of his birth. Well, um, and you tie it back to particularly the neighborhood that she um, had grown up in and had hoped to raise him in, is known for having one of the highest incarceration rates. Um, there's extensive poverty. And so I'm thinking about, I'm a teacher in San Francisco, 
And this summer, thinking about geographic and sort of inequitable outcomes, this summer I had an opportunity to teach in Marin. And so for those who are unfamiliar with Marin, it is a very wealthy county um, that's just north of San Francisco. And I taught with this phenomenal program called Next Generation Scholars, um, who's really working to use education as a tool to minimize inequities. Um, and I was working predominantly with first-generation Latinx students. But we were in these classrooms in Marin um, in a couple different private schools. And as I was there, I was grounded or um, I was floored by how well-equipped these rooms were. And so thinking about for my students in San Francisco in a neighborhood that is lower income where I've got mice occasionally scurrying across the floor um, or paint peeling off my walls. And in this school that I was in in Marin, there was a wire, I connected wirelessly to a projector that hung from the ceiling. There were individual desks. There were only 20 desks in the room. Um, there were Bose speakers embedded in the ceiling. And so... I really appreciate that you tied this back to our geography in a lot of ways, how we allow certain communities to have access to resources and the way we have policies that are structured to empower certain people um, really affects the outcomes of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and infant mortality is a, a great example of that. For, you know, in the case of Tonda, she grew up, as you said, in this neighborhood in Milwaukee, um, which is one of the most segregated cities in America. Um, and in that neighborhood, you know, it's, it's very stressful to live there. It's, it's, you have to travel far to get to work. Um, there are higher rates of violence there than in other neighborhoods. You know, there's higher unemployment, higher incarceration rates. There are a lot of evictions. Uh, for any listeners who haven't read Evicted um, by Matthew Desmond, that's a, a really great primer on how the housing market works in these kinds of neighborhoods, and that's also set in Milwaukee. Um, and, you know, Tonda is a good example of someone who did everything right, um, at least as she thought. She went to all her prenatal appointments. She was in shape. Uh, she was fairly educated. Uh, she had been working as a model. She wasn't living in deep poverty at all, um, but had this really poor outcome. And, um, first, she blamed herself, like we were talking about in the first segment, and and then she's been now since then thinking about all of the environmental circumstances under which she grew up and how um, just the daily conditions of, of life in that neighborhood are so different from, um, for example, the east side of Milwaukee, closer to the lake, uh, where it's much more affluent and, and white. Um, so you introduced, I mean, to that point, I had never heard the term allostatic load before. Um, and correct me, my understanding, based on what I read, was that as we move through our life, we take on or we experience stressors. And a lot of that can be based on our neighborhood, our access to resources, um, such as healthy food, stable jobs, um, strong social connections. But this idea of allostatic load is that these stressors in some ways can compound and that that actually, if we talk about sort of intersection of race and gender, as a mother who is carrying a child, um, that those stressors can absolutely impact uh, the likelihood of your child coming to full term and having 
a healthy first year of life. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that this is really fascinating science. Um, so when researchers were trying to figure out why they had this discrepancy, this racial gap, even when they controlled for poverty and for education and all these other impacts that we know do affect health, um, they still have this gap. And so they made this connection between another area of research, which is looking at allostatic load and looking at the impact of stress. And um, to put it in very general terms, stress and the, the hormones that stress releases can impact a wide variety of biological systems, um, your vascular system, your nervous system, uh, your pulmonary system. Um, and and it not only can it impact these things, but it can also have impacts that are cumulative that add up over time and that um, they believe can be passed down from one generation to the next. So not mm. only does it matter what neighborhood that you grew up in, um, as, as a mother, but it matters what neighborhood your mother grew up in and, and moved through. So if your mother grew up in the Jim Crow South and then migrated to the North during the Great Migration and then faced various other types of discrimination in the North, that may matter for your health and the health of your child too. Um, and I, I just find that an incredibly profound hypothesis to suggest that um, these social and economic histories the history of racism can live on in the body for not just years, but for generations. In a, in a follow-up in that, in our final couple minutes, um, so I've been thinking a lot contextually of racism in the United States and to this theory of um, sort of the way that our bodies can carry trauma um, and pass them on into our the next generation. Um, in looking at Charlottesville and thinking about our country where I see racism in my interactions and every day, um, and I think as a country we have not done work around healing, whereas I think in sort of post-Holocaust in Germany where it's now illegal to have Nazi propaganda, or in South Africa where after apartheid ended they had truth and reconciliation commissions, and they really tried to do this work to allow for healing to take place. I'm sort of curious as we wrap up um, either what's happening in Milwaukee to try to heal um, communities either within the black community or across different races, but also sort of what are your thoughts moving forward as a country? How can we sort of shift and heal from this racial discrimination um, in a way that can curb and prevent the continuation of these patterns of trauma? Hmm. I think that's a, a really important question, and I don't have any perfect answer for that. I think especially um, as a white person, I don't know that I'm best equipped to say what we need for reconciliation for healing, but some some ideas, I guess, you know, you can approach something from a public policy perspective. So if you think about what injustices are present that we could do something about through public policy, that would be one way to go about it. And that's what Milwaukee has tried to do in some ways. Um, the city is taking a proactive response to infant mortality and has made it um, one of its main public health priorities. And it is putting some money behind um, you know, home visiting campaigns, trying to get nurses to visit mothers, uh, you know, some, some jobs programs, things of that nature. But even, you know, what's really 
troubling and a bit depressing is that even when a city government cares and is aware of a problem um, and is aware of this sort of historical injustice um, and is on board, it's, it's really difficult to change massive residential segregation, for example. Um, yeah. and, and so, I mean, I think number one is for everyone involved in public policy to make it a priority to put racial justice at the top of your list when you're making public policy decisions. So when you're talking about putting money towards development or for an economic development project, um, what neighborhoods is it impacting? Who is it helping? When you're citing a polluting chemical facility, where are you citing it? What community are being impacted by that facility? Those are sort of like, I would say that's almost the lowest hanging fruit for um, restoring some balance. And then there are, of course, much bigger conversations to be had about reparations and things of that nature if, if we want to talk about a national scale healing and reconciliation and, and a real reckoning with um, the history of um, racism in America. I think that's that goes way beyond um, those local public policy decisions. But I think every every level of decision-making um, needs to consider its impact on communities of color uh, would be sort of the basic starting point. Yeah. It feels like we've only <laughs> skimmed the surface um, Yeah. this issue, and I'm sorry that, unfortunately, our time is coming to a close. Um, but I really appreciate you writing this article. And I want to really encourage anyone who hasn't read it to check it out because I think it you do a beautiful job of not only talking about the tragedy but also the importance of love and healing and trying to reverse or I don't think we can reverse, but trying to figure out how do we move forward in a way that can heal our communities and allow for more equitable outcomes to be achieved across race um, and class. So Zoe, well, thanks so much for for <laughs> taking an interest for taking an interest in the article and reading it so carefully. Absolutely. Um, and thank you for your time. Yeah, anytime. All right, talk soon. <laughs> Bye, Allison. <laughs> Bye. Welcome back, everybody. It's Mark again. Wasn't that interview great? Sorry for the little audio interference, but thank you again, Allison and Zoe. I love how Zoe mentioned the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond, which I highlighted way back in the highlighter number 34. Also, I appreciated how Allison channeled Brian Stevenson in her question about how we haven't truly confronted our racist past. Podcast listeners, if you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. If you're not yet a subscriber to the weekly digest that comes out on Thursday mornings, try it out by going to J dot mp slash the highlighter also as always feel free to email me at the highlighter 99 at gmail.com that's it for this episode have a great day